My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects Podcast. That is a mouthful to say. Before we dive into the show today, just a bit of housekeeping, you may have noticed that I changed the name of the podcast. This weekend, the current prophet of the Mormon Church, Russell M. Nelson, requested that people no longer call the church the Mormon Church, but that they refer to it by its full name. As this is a subject we previously covered in Episode 7, if you haven't heard it, I have changed the name to the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects. I'm happy to comply, but saying that name might add another minute to all of my episodes. Now, back to the show. We're overlapping the years on today's object with the last episode and the next one, too. Today, we're going to be discussing the years of 1840 to 1845. Now, growth-wise, the church is really taking off during these years. There was a small pause in growth after the Missouri crisis, but with the apostles in Europe spreading the word and Nauvoo taking off, Membership in the Mormon Church will almost double between the years of 1840 and 1845, going just over 30,000 members. Aiding in this growth is the development of new doctrines and the establishment of official beliefs. For example, in 1842, Joseph Smith will pen 13 articles of faith that will be printed in the newspaper, the Chicago Democrat. These articles of faith are still utilized today in modern church curriculum and memorized by Mormon youth across the globe. Now, context-wise, what was going on in the world at that time? First off, by way of interest for our Mormons, I'm sure they noticed that on May 22nd of 1843, the first major wagon train was headed off on the Oregon Trail with thousands of pioneers. They were leaving the American states for new territories and new opportunities, and I'm sure the Mormons took note. Now, in politics, the United States had a new president, James Polk. The former governor of Tennessee was voted in as the 11th president in December of 1844. James Polk narrowly defeated Henry Clay in the polls and carried 15 states to Henry Clay's 11. It was a bitter election, as important topics such as slavery, state and women's rights were important talking points. I'm sure James Polk was also wondering about the uneducated man running as an independent out of Illinois. This man had some good ideas such as redeeming slaves by selling public lands and buying their freedom from plantation owners. He proposed the closure of prisons, the annexation of Texas, Oregon, and parts of Canada, and the reestablishment of a national bank. Fortunately for President Polk, he wouldn't have to run against this independent as he'd be assassinated in June of 1844. That man was Mormon prophet Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was right on a lot of topics, though. On July 4th of 1845, Texas would vote to be annexed by the United States. After a prolonged confrontation with Mexico, Texas was looking to unite itself to America and become the 28th member of the United States of America. Also at this time, the Kingdom of Hawaii would nationally be recognized as an independent nation. November 28th is officially recognized as Hawaii's Independence Day. Now, a few other items of context. In 1844, the famed writer Edgar Allan Poe moves from Philadelphia to New York in a failed attempt to find employment. Edgar Allan Poe wrote all his famous novels already and would die mysteriously with only $4.50 to his name. 
Also at this time, the New York Herald will be the first newspaper to mention the sport of baseball in print. The New York Knickerbockers, now known as a basketball team, would want the rules of baseball printed for all to see. Now, also during this period, we had a few important inventions. In 1845, the inventor Elias Howe would be tinkering with some new inventions. He had lost his job in the Panic of 1837 when he was hoping his newest invention, the sewing machine, would help make his fortune. I know my mother-in-law sure loves him for it. And lastly, at this time, Samuel Morse would send the first message ever via telegraph. The message would travel from Baltimore to Washington and would carry the note, What God Hath Wrought. What an interesting comment, what God hath wrought. What had God wrought for the Mormons during these years? Well, as we've hinted, the Mormons are working on a new temple. However, with the death of the prophet, the Mormons would scatter in different directions, with the majority heading to the Rocky Mountains. Lost during these years were the plans for that temple and today's object. Today's object is the Nauvoo Temple Plans. So, what are the Nauvoo Temple Plans, and how did they come about? In the early months after establishing Nauvoo in 1840, Joseph Smith announced plans for the building of a new temple. Joseph Smith was excited he would state that the building of this temple was an event of the greatest importance to the church and the world, and that the earth would be smitten with a curse unless there was a welding link of some kind between the father and the children. He encouraged the Mormons to put everything into the building of this temple. To get this work off the ground, the Mormons needed building plans. So Joseph Smith invited architects to submit proposals and drawings of a temple for the Mormons' consideration. William Weeks, a new member of the Mormon church, would recall that when he went in and showed his plans, Joseph Smith grabbed him, hugged him, and said, You are the man I want. So on April 6th of 1841, The temple's cornerstone was laid and the work was begun. So, now that the Mormons had their Nauvoo temple plans, they were to build the temple almost exactly as William Weeks had written them up, with a few exceptions. First off, Joseph looked over the plans when construction began and told William that the Mormons wanted round windows for office windows. William protested, saying that the building was too short for that style of window. Joseph Smith would reply, I wish you to carry out my designs... I have seen and visioned the splendid appearance of that building illuminated and will have it built according to the pattern shown me, end quote. William Weeks complied. He updated the Nauvoo temple plans and the temple was built with round windows. Now, the interior of this temple was very similar to that of the Kirtland temple, just larger. However, the exterior was vastly different. The temple would have symbolism all over the exterior. First off, if you look at pictures of the temple, You'll see, going from the ground up, stones with the carving of the moon, then the sun, and then the stars. This collection is also found on the Salt Lake Temple, but the order and symbolism is different. On the Salt Lake Temple, the order is the stars, the moon, then the sun, representing the kingdoms of glory God has for his children, according to Mormon doctrine. With the sun being the brightest and representing the full glory of the celestial kingdom at the top. However, The Nauvoo Temple order was the moon, the sun, and then the stars. The order was meant to show the objects you encounter moving away from the earth as the moon, the sun, and the stars, meaning the Nauvoo Temple was to contain the understanding of the universe. Additional symbolism was found on the sunstones themselves. You can see pictures of these stones online if you Google it. 
you'll see the sun with some chevrons below it and hands above holding trumpets. According to Brigham Young, this was to symbolize the Son of God breaking through the clouds of darkness and trumpeting the gospel in all directions. A representation of the restoration in these latter days. So, the construction was underway in 1841 and wouldn't finish until 1846. This construction was a mammoth undertaking for the Mormons, and they needed all hands to see it through. The church entered into a lot of debt to build the Kirtland Temple, but this temple was going to lean on the tithes of the Mormons for payment and the work of the men for almost all the construction. Remember, most of the Mormons were quite poor, having lost everything to the Missouri mobs in Far West. Joseph Smith asked all the men to donate one day in ten to work on the temple and one-tenth of their income. We discussed the creation of the Relief Society in episode 30. The women were donating food for the men and sometimes their families, and they were preparing clothing and knitting socks and mittens to help make the men feel comfortable as they worked on cutting stone and timber in the winter months. The women in surrounding counties wanted to help too. Those in La Harpe and Macedonia, Illinois, raised enough money to even purchase a construction crane for the temple in July of 1842. The Mormons would donate everything they could for this temple. Mercy Fielding Thompson wanted to help, so she encouraged all the women in Nauvoo to donate one cent per week for the purpose of buying glass and nails. Others sold their china dishes, while one sister, not knowing what she had to give, donated her deceased husband's pocket watch for funds to help build up the temple. In episode 28, we discussed the emergence of the revelation on baptisms for the dead. Again, these baptisms were initially performed in the Mississippi River. But with the basement of the temple finished, a temporary wooden font was installed and rested upon the shoulders of twelve oxen, representing the twelve tribes of Israel. This font was dedicated on November 8th of 1841, and these baptisms would only take place in temples going forward. The unrolling of Mormon temple doctrine continued to be revealed to Joseph Smith, though the temple was still under construction. On May 4th of 1842, in the same red brick store where the Relief Society was organized, Joseph Smith administered for the first time the temple endowment to nine men. Though it was initially given to just a few people, regarding the endowment, or the Temple Covenants, Joseph Smith would write, quote, There was nothing made to these men, but that will be made known to all the saints of the last days, so soon as they are prepared to receive, and a proper place is prepared to communicate to them. End quote. Lastly, regarding the doctrine, in the previous episode we discussed how Joseph Smith also at this time revealed the principle of eternal marriage. Men and women could be sealed by the priesthood for eternity. All of these ordinances took place in and around Nauvoo, but the plan was for them only to take place in the Nauvoo Temple and other temples to be built going forward. This work was the crown of Joseph Smith's work as a prophet. Parley P. Pratt, who participated in all these ordinances, would write, quote, I had loved before, but I knew not why. But now I loved with the pureness and intensity of elevated, exalted feeling. I felt that God was my heavenly Father indeed. Jesus was my brother, and that the wife of my bosom was an immortal, eternal companion. My dearly beloved brother Joseph Smith had given me a single glance into eternity. End quote. These ordinances that caused these feelings in Parley P. Pratt were Joseph Smith's vision for the temple. Unfortunately, Joseph Smith wouldn't see this vision revealed in his life. 
Early in 1844, Joseph Smith called together the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and administered to them all of the ordinances of the temple. He proceeded at that point to confer the keys of the sealing power on Elder Brigham Young. The prophet then declared, quote, Now, if they kill me, you have got all the keys and all the ordinances, and you can confer them upon others. End quote. On June 27th of that year, the prophet Joseph Smith will be murdered. Now, we'll cover this event in an upcoming episode, but the temple wasn't yet finished. Pressure would mount against the Mormons from the state of Illinois for them to leave. Though work had paused on the temple, the Mormons wanted to see it through. In November of 1845, the attic story was finished and dedicated, and endowments can now be performed for the members. Over the next week, 5,600 members would receive their endowment in the Nauvoo Temple. Soon the temple was operating around the clock, while work to finish the rest of the building continued. Brigham Young had planned to leave Nauvoo on February 4, 1846, but as he left the temple the previous night, he saw a large crowd of people waiting to receive their endowments. He delayed his departure for two weeks in order to serve them. Thousands more received their endowment before leaving Nauvoo. Now, we'll cover this in upcoming episodes, but the Mormons would, again, within the next year, pack up everything, feel their wagons, and begin the trek to the Rocky Mountains. So, what happened to the Nauvoo temple plants? William Weeks would keep them. He carried them with him to Utah. And after a time, he moved further west to California, where the temple plants would stay within his family, passed on to his children, who would eventually leave the Mormon church. The family didn't think much of them. Drawing number 10 of the plans of the temple also now includes two sailboats. When one of the children couldn't find paper to draw on, they used the Nauvoo temple plans. Now, years and years later, in 1939, the Mormon church had its feet under itself and wanted to purchase back the land it abandoned in Nauvoo, Illinois. It purchased the land, including the temple lot. All that was left of their precious Nauvoo temple in 1939 were the cornerstones and a few sunstones. One sunstone was in a Mormon's yard in Utah. The other is in the Smithsonian Museum. How would the Mormons rebuild the temple without the plans? The drawings would have remained in obscurity if not for a chance meeting in 1948, when Mormon missionaries were knocking on doors in the small California town of Boren. They came to the door of Leslie and Zeta Griffin, descendants of William Weeks that were not members of the Mormon church. The Griffins quickly struck up a friendship with the missionaries and felt strongly that the temple plans should be returned to the church. So they gave them to one of the missionaries on his way home to Salt Lake City for him to give to the Mormon church leadership. The church had recovered the Nauvoo temple plans. The Nauvoo temple would finally be rebuilt in 2001. Regarding the plans, one Mormon leader remarked, quote, Efforts have been made to reflect as closely as practical the original exterior designs and interior appointments. Brother Weeks' drawings were an essential part of this study and research. The manner in which the Nauvoo Temple has been reconstructed would not have been possible without these original plans. End quote. Now, where can you see the Nauvoo Temple plans today? They are in the Church History Library, though you can see copies of them online. Now, to finish, let's go back to that quote by Joseph Smith. He said, There was nothing made known to these men but that will be made known to all the saints of the last days, so soon as they are prepared to receive and a proper place is prepared to communicate them. Just yesterday, on October 7th, 
the current Mormon prophet announced the construction of 12 new temples to be built around the globe. If these are finished by the year 2030, the Mormons will have 200 working temples on its 200th anniversary. It appears that God hath wrought quite an impressive work. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects, episode number 32, Nauvoo Temple Plants. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at Joe, H-O-M-C, historyofmormonchurch at gmail.com. Oh, I guess I have to change my email address too. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media or leave me a comment on iTunes. It helps me get the word out. Thanks again for listening. 